This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 276th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a unsolved mystery, which has finally been solved. All right. And a new dinosaur. And we have dinosaur of the day, Hesperonychus. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Andrew, and Helena Webb, and I've been saying Helena wrong for a long time. Sorry about that. <laughs> Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, Wouter, Moss Utah Raptor, Verosaraptor, Goji, Neolovenator, Aussie David, and Ellen. And Aussie David and Ellen both just increased their pledge, so now they're getting shoutouts. So thank you both for bumping up your pledges. Woohoo! Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for all of your support. Really excited to release that art to our patrons. Yes. And just a quick note to anybody joining at the Ankylosaurus level or other levels that get shoutouts, we've been sending out quick welcome videos to check on name pronunciation and what name you want included. So don't ignore these videos if you get one from us. <laughs> Otherwise, we might mispronounce your name or not say what you want. And those will go to the email address associated with the Patreon that you have linked. That's mostly how we communicate is through that email address. So hopefully it's a real email address. <laughs> so if you want those welcome videos and then eventually our art and other rewards, then check out our page, patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, I'm going to kick it off with the new dinosaur. I also really like the other discovery, but usually we start with the new dinosaur because that's the name of the game when it comes to dinosaur paleontology. So <laughs> this article is about a new abelosaurid, and it was written by M.A. Cerrone and others and published in the Journal of South American Earth Sciences. It's one I don't remember from before. But in this case, they're talking about an abelosaurid from Argentina. And abelosauridae is that group that includes Carnotaurus, the cool one with the really miniature little weird arms. Yeah, yeah. And the kind of horns. Yes. This one is named Tralcosaurus cuyi, and Tralcosaurus is obviously the saurus part is lizard, but Tralca means thunder in Mapudungan. Oh, I love thunder lizards. Yeah, exactly. It's the same as Brontosaurus. Except not quite as good. And it's also an abelosaurid, so it's kind of weird that they named it thunder lizard <laughs> when there's already a thunder lizard, which is a huge sauropod. Makes its own thunder in its own way. I guess. I'm not sure exactly why they picked that. They just said that it means thunder and, you know, moving on. <laughs> so 
Cuyay, though, is from El Cuy, which is an area in Rio Negra, Argentina, where it was found. Tralcasaurus was found in the Huincul Formation, which is basically in southwest Argentina. This time they actually gave the GPS coordinates of the find, which is something you don't see that often, because a lot of times they're worried about other people going in and trying to steal fossils that might still be in the area. Maybe they're done excavating. Yeah, I think they are. And then I'm also guessing they named the farm that it's on, and maybe the owners of that farm are just not so worried about trespassers, either because they're remote or they're just good at defending against poaching. I don't know. (laughs) I thought it was kind of funny, though. Tralcasaurus is in the same formation as Mapusaurus and Scorpiovenator, which we've talked about recently. And they're all from the Cenomanian to Turonian, which is 100 to 90 million years ago in the Cretaceous, just like most stuff in Argentina. It was actually a pretty good find. They found a bunch of vertebrae, some poorly preserved hips, and a pretty complete right maxilla, which is basically the front right of the snout above you know, where the jaw is. And included in that maxilla are a few teeth, but other than that, there wasn't anything else. No other bits of the skull or limbs of any sort. So it's it's kind of good because there's part of the skull, which you don't usually get, but then it's missing a lot of the pieces that we usually do find. <laughs> it's kind of a weird find. The teeth are quote-unquote indistinguishable from other abelosaurids, and they describe them as serrated and curved, possibly most like Majungasaurus. So... That's maybe a close relative. The maxilla is about 22 centimeters long, or about 8.7 inches, and that's about two-thirds the size of Carnotaurus and Scorpiovenator, which is probably the best bone we have to go on for sort of scaling it. So obviously this wasn't that big of a dinosaur, because Carnotaurus already isn't quite that big, and then this is two-thirds the size of that. The hips are similar in size to an unnamed abelosaurid from a nearby formation, which might mean that there were sort of a whole group of these two-third Carnotaurus-sized abelosaurids around in the area. But I didn't see any mention of histology or other growth analysis, so I'm wondering if it could be a juvenile, because they didn't specifically mention that in any way. Fizz.org reported it was about 4 meters or 13 feet long, and they also said, quote, According to the researchers, Trachosaurus probably fed on small herbivore dinosaurs called iguanodonts that have been found nearby by the same team of researchers, end quote. Which is a little surprising to me because at 13 feet long, an iguanodont tends to be a little large. <laughs> but maybe they, you know, preyed on some young iguanodonts or something. Or weak ones. Yeah. You don't always have to hunt the healthy adults. But it is kind of interesting. It reminds me a little bit of the tyrannosaurs in North America, where first we found the really big ones, and then later on we started to find smaller ones. Then they kind of fill in all the niches, even just within one group of dinosaurs. It makes sense, right? When you're out digging, the big ones catch your eye more. Mm -hmm. And then eventually technology gets a little better. It's easier to find. Yeah. And, you know, you you just spend more time out there. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think the big bones sometimes preserve better because they don't get all washed away so you can find a group of them potentially together, whereas you might not with the small ones. Right. Unless you're like those amazing spots in China where they all seem to just (laughs) fossilize these tiny things together without losing anything. It could also be now we know that the big ones existed, but surely there must be other gaps in this niche or in this ecology. Yeah. Every time you find a new thing, there's two new gaps. Yeah. So who knows, maybe we'll find some more abelosaurids in South America too. 
Up next is the unsolved mystery that I had promised. Specifically, it's a dinosaur track mystery. And this one was published in Historical Biology by Anthony Romilio and others. Oh, this is the one about the caves? Yes. It took a farmer's market and some other uh, amazing coincidences. Yes. Anything else you want to share? <laughs> no, no, no. I won't, I won't spoil the mystery yet, or I'll try not to. Well, yeah. <laughs> so the mystery is all around the fire clay caverns in Mount Morgan, Australia. And Mount Morgan is in Queensland near Rockhampton, if you're familiar with the area. It's northwest of Brisbane. And they're called the fire clay caverns because they were originally clay mines way back in like the 19 teens and 20s. And they have a map showing at least nine areas in the mine with tracks. And apparently there's a total of hundreds of dinosaur tracks in this mine, including in two bat caves. Which that is must super have been cool. so fun to find. Yeah, I love bats. So it's like bats and dinosaur tracks in the same place. What more could you want? Sounds great. <laughs> Technically, all of the tracks are natural infill casts of the original tracks, which we've talked about before. Basically, you have your track maker squishes down the dirt or the mud or whatever and walks away. And then in order to get fossilized, it has to get covered over with some other material. And then the whole thing solidifies. And whether or not the part that filled over the track or the track itself is the part that fossilizes is just a coincidence of history. Sometimes both happen. Sometimes only one does. In this case, the original track eroded away, but the material that flowed over the tracks and filled in the tracks preserved. So we have all these natural casts that kind of bump out from the rock, mostly in the ceiling of these caverns, which is really cool. Geologically, they're in the razorback beds, which makes them early Jurassic about 200 to 190 million years ago. It's a really interesting time for tracks because dinosaurs were still evolving quite a bit at the time. So their feet sometimes looked a little weird. <laughs> it can be harder to tell the difference between, say, a, a theropod and an ornithischian because their feet were still more similar back then, potentially. And in some of the cases in these tracks, the spacing was pretty weird. So for a while, they'd been considered quadrupedal theropod tracks. Oh, it is weird. Super weird. Obviously, if you know about theropods, there aren't really quadrupedal theropods, so it might raise an eyebrow or two. <laughs> so they've been re-examined quite a few times over the years. The first look at them was in the 1950s, and then they've been looked at a couple times since. And then in 2010, raised steel walkways were added for tourists to look at the tracks. But unfortunately, in 2011, there had been a couple of rock falls, so the mines were close to any sort of visitors whatsoever, including scientists. So there's no way to go back in and look at the tracks. So most of the recent work on these had looked just at original pictures and drawings and other material that was available from the primary sources. But according to ABC Capricornia, the lead author Romilio was working at a fruit and vegetable market to help pay for his PhD at the University of Queensland when he met Rosalind Dick. And it never takes long for the subject of dinosaurs to come up with strangers when you work with dinosaurs at all. So <laughs> I'm not surprised that they happen to get to the subject. But apparently, Rosalind Dick's father, Ross Staines, was the author of the original paper describing the tracks in the fire clay caverns way back in the 50s. Small world. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a great picture of Ross Staines on a ladder holding a scale bar up to the ceiling <laughs> to a track on the roof of the mine, which is really fun. 
the bit of luck that comes in along with the serendipity of meeting between this paleontologist and (laughs) the daughter of the original paleontologist who described the tracks is that Rosalind and her sisters had kept their father's work for the last 70-ish years. (laughs) And because of that, they had higher quality photos, maps of the site, and a cast replica of one of the tracks from his work all that time ago. That's really cool. Yeah. So as a result, Rosalind and her two sisters, Heather and Janice, eventually became co-authors on the paper, which is pretty neat. So in the Fireclay Caverns, most of the tracks have been linked to Ichnotaxa, both Theropod and Ornithischian. Some of the name tracks are Gralator, Eubrontes, Scartopus, and Anamopus. But there are five tracks from Site A, which have always just been considered dinosaur tracks. Because nobody knew what to make of them. <laughs> yeah, they're the very unusual ones that had been associated with potentially a quadrupedal dinosaur. But Staines had apparently also suggested that it might not be from a quadrupedal dinosaur, but could have been from two different bipedal dinosaurs. And Romilio put that as a hypothesis that has largely been ignored, hinting at maybe where this is going. I wonder why that was ignored. I don't know. Maybe just because a quadrupedal theropod is more sensational. So it's the thing that stands out in your memory. Or the tracks are just so odd, it seems like, why would it be from two different dinosaurs? Yeah, they they do overlap in a way where it kind of looks like one would be a handprint. Because if you know how quadrupedal animal prints usually look, you have the foot and then the handprint is just in front of it. And obviously is usually smaller as they walk along. And that's kind of how this looked. But to Stain's eye, he thought maybe it's just coincidence and there's a smaller biped that happened to be walking in the same sort of pattern with smaller feet. (laughs) So it gave the impression of handprints. So they reanalyzed the images of Site A and they used the track cast to get a precise scale of the photograph, which is kind of a clever way to do it because you can see really clearly which print is the one that the cast is of. And so you can measure it, obviously. He actually did a digital scan to get the exact measurements of it and then replicated it digitally to see the exact size of the other tracks. And based on that, you can get more accurate measurements about the length versus width and the angle in between the toes and how long the toes are and all that kind of stuff. One of the early hints that they probably weren't dinosaur hands, though, is that After looking at these higher resolution images, all the tracks have three digits and dinosaur hands at the time pretty much all had at least four digits. So it doesn't seem so much like a handprint right off the gate. And after a little bit more analysis, they found that the tracks were wider than they are long and some other minor details that are usually associated with ornithischians. So probably not even theropods, let alone a quadrupedal theropod. And then after some further analysis, it looks like those smaller prints are consistent with being a footprint of a different ornithischian. So they ended up with, quote, two bipedal ornithischians, a small-bodied track maker with a hip height of 0.48 meters or one foot seven inches, and a medium-bodied track maker with a hip height up to 0.95 meters or three foot one inches, which independently moved along a lake's paleo shoreline, end quote. A stroll along the lake. Yeah. (laughs) But I guess not at the same time. Maybe at the same time. I mean, not on top of each other, but one could be following the other. Oh, that's true. That's true. (laughs) 
So maybe it's a little baby following a mama or vice versa, or just a baby following a larger one so that it's protected. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or they were a thousand years apart. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) You can make up all kinds of stories. You really can. Based on these scales, too, if you're not really familiar with what a height means, because we almost always talk about length, they would be about five feet and 10 feet long. So yeah, they're pretty small. Even the bigger one, a 10 foot long, three foot tall dinosaur is not real big, especially for an herbivore. So it sounds like a really amazing track site. And I like that they've finally solved this mystery. Unfortunately, it didn't solve in the most fantastical way. It would be cool if they confirmed somehow that it was a quadrupedal theropod that no one had ever found before. (laughs) The story of how everything came together is pretty great, though. Yeah. Yeah. Just like working at a farmer's market and run into somebody's daughter who... Mm -hmm. Strike up a conversation about dinosaurs. Yeah. I love that they kept that stuff. It kind of speaks to how much people like dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of other research, if it was 70 years old old notebooks or something might not be kept so long. But if it's dinosaur related, you got to hang on to that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And they also mentioned in the article that they want the fire clay caverns to get heritage listed, which I also think would be a great idea. I mean, there's hundreds of tracks in there and they're in Australia, which is already not a very well-known dinosaur fauna in general. So Anything you can have in the area is awesome. And anywhere where there's a hundred plus tracks, you definitely want to preserve. So hopefully these caverns will get listed so that they get preserved and everybody can see them. I guess they need some work so that they don't collapse completely as well. Yeah. Or so that visitors don't have to worry about rock falls. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of places to visit, I've got, it's an update, but it's really two updates about the Utah Raptors State Park in Utah. So first thing, it was approved by the Utah House with a 45 to 23 vote. Nice. Really quick background. The park's estimated to cost $10 million. They wanted to build a visitor center, main road, and campground. And if it were to be created, it would be on the south end of the Dinosaur Diamond Prehistoric Highway, which is this 480-mile loop that goes through paleontology sites in Utah and Colorado. I didn't know it had a name. But then it headed to the Senate. That's the other update. The Senate Natural Resources, Environment, and Agriculture Committee had doubts about where they would get the funding, even though there was a lot of talk about how it wouldn't affect this year's budget. But anyway, it went to a 3-3 vote, and that means that there will not be a Utah Raptor State Park. Oh, at least not for now. Yeah. I don't know what happens next. Not too familiar with this kind of level of government. Well, in general, you can always resubmit it a year or two later to reconsider it for classification. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully in one year when they do have budget yeah, or no budget concerns. <laughs> yeah. Over in Hawaii, well, sort of Hawaii, well, there's a man from Hawaii. He goes by the name Abba Gibbs. He started this quest of visiting over 100 hospitals in the U.S. this year, and he's calling it his Healing Dinosaurs Tour. Mm-hmm. He's a ventriloquist and he's using dinosaur puppets to cheer up kids in the hospital. It's a really sweet story. So he started in Hawaii. That's where he's from. And he said he likes making kids laugh. He's also a grandpa and his nickname comes from the word in Spanish, abuelo. His nickname of Abba Gibbs. I don't know where the Gibbs comes from. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd be interested to see what a dinosaur ventriloquist looks like. You just have the dinosaur puppets and then they talk, but his mouth doesn't move much. Yeah. But what are the dinosaurs talking about? 
Ooh, anything. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes, things to cheer kids up. Probably depends on the kid and the place. That makes sense. Yeah. Sounds like you're ready to be your own dinosaur ventriloquist. Oh, I'm terrible at ventriloquism. I don't, I don't think I've ever tried to do ventriloquism. I could try it now. Can you tell? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's not for me. <laughs> anyway, it's March, which uh, I guess means start planning for your summer. So <laughs> the Carnegie Museum of Natural History already announced their plans for camps for the kids ages 4 to 13. And they have half-day dinosaur digs. And they have other camps about dinosaurs that give kids time to see the museum's exhibit, which is Dinosaurs in Their Time. And they also have camps with Pokemon, Spider-Man, and Harry Potter themes. But uh, we're a dinosaur podcast, so it's only worth briefly mentioning those. Yeah, definitely go to the dinosaur-themed one. (laughs) And then last, we have some, it was bad news, but has now turned to good news. And this is thanks to Jen Cotton. You might know Jen as the doodling dino who made one of our shirts. And Jen shared this with us. So on March 2nd, Three Deinonychus that were part of an exhibit where they're attacking Tenontosaurus were stolen from Eccles Dinosaur Park in Ogden, Utah. The raptors had recently been refurbished with resculpted details and a new color scheme. So it wasn't great that they were stolen. But luckily, a few days later, the raptors were found. So Kirk Larson, the artist who had restored the raptors, had posted about the theft on Facebook and then word spread quickly. Got on a couple of news articles as well. And now the two individuals are in custody awaiting legal proceedings. As Jen put it, quote, We at the museum are all relieved, though I imagine Tenontosaurus may not be too excited to have a pack of raptors climbing on him again. He'll have a brief respite while the Deinonychus pack is held in evidence pending court proceedings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> End quote. Mm-hmm. I had to share that one because it made me laugh. <laughs> Imagining a group of dinosaur sculptures in an evidence locker is pretty funny too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dino dig. You'll get all of the details. 
Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Hesperonychus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602. So thanks. Hesperonychus was a dromaeosaurid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada, was found in the Dinosaur Park Formation, and it was a small bipedal carnivore, estimated to be under 3 feet or 1 meters long and weigh about 4 pounds or 1.9 kilograms. That is small. Mm-hmm. It's part of Microraptorinae, which was thought to be only in the early Cretaceous in Asia until they found Hesperonychus. Uh, now it makes sense why it's so small. Yeah. <laughs> And until Hesperonychus was found, Microraptor was the youngest known one, but Hesperonychus lived about 45 million years later. And like Garrett said, Microraptorinae, known for their smallness, Microraptorines, they're small, they can potentially fly or glide, though Hesperonychus probably did not have four wings or glide like Microraptor, and may have been similar to Cynornithosaurus because they are similar in size. Before Hesperonychus, Small carnivorous dinosaurs hadn't really been found in North America, and that was strange because in modern ecosystems with endothermic mammals, there are more smaller species than larger ones. The authors described in the paper about it that it weighed about half as much as a pet cat. <laughs> I guess four pounds, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Nick Longridge said that it was about half the size of Velociraptor. That looked kind of like Velociraptor. Yeah, they're both dromaeosaurids. Mm-hmm. Hesperonychus had sharp claws and teeth, and it had a large sickle-shaped claw on its second toe. It probably hunted and ate insects and mammals, amphibians, maybe baby dinosaurs, whatever was small enough for it to eat. It may have spent a lot of time searching for food close to the ground in marshes and forests, too. The type and only species is Hesperonychus elizabethae, and the genus name means western claw. The species name is in honor of Dr. Elizabeth Betsy Nichols, who found the holotype. And Nichols was curator of marine reptiles at the Royal Tyrrell Museum, but she passed away in 2004. The holotype of Hesperonychus is one partial pelvic girdle, which is part of the University of Alberta Laboratory for Vertebrate Paleontology Edmonton Collections. Dr. Elizabeth Nichols collected the holotype back in 1982, and then Longridge and Curry found the holotype in a drawer in 2007. They found the claws first, and they thought it was a juvenile, and then they found the pelvis with the fused hip bones and confirmed it was an adult. Cool. Makes sense, because you see the claws and you think, oh, so small. Yeah. So it was described in 2009 by Nick Longridge and Phil Curry. There's a few small toe bones, including the sickle claws, that have been tentatively referred to Hesperonychus. That's also part of the Royal Tyrrell's collections. Many fragments and claws of at least 10 individuals have been found that may be Hesperonychus, and that could mean that it was common in the area where it was found. Longridge and Curry said that the fact that it took 100 years after discovering Dinosaur Park formation to describe and name the small Hesperonychus shows the preservational and collecting biases that shape how we see dinosaurs. It's like we were talking about earlier with the Bellosaurids. Exactly. 
Longridge said that he thinks there are lots more fossils of small carnivorous dinosaurs, especially since there are more small predators than large ones today. He said, quote, my gut says that when we take a good close look at the fossil record, we'll start to see this kind of animal in a lot of different places. He was quoted in many articles saying that. (laughs) The next smallest carnivore in the area was Eodelphus, which was a mammal that weighed 21 ounces or 600 grams. So about half again, the small one. Yeah, there's some small animals there. Longrich and Curry think either competition from dinosaurs kept most mammals small or competition from mammals made most dinosaurs larger, or maybe it's a combination of both. That's an interesting idea to say that the competition from mammals kept dinosaurs large. Yeah. We always talk about it the other way, like dinosaurs were filling all the large niches, so mammals had to stay small until they went extinct. Yeah. But looking at it the other way, where it's like the mammals are always small and occupying all these niches where you have to be tiny so the dinosaurs couldn't shrink tiny enough right and then the mammals won in the end yeah (laughs) so we might have been the ones that were smarter all along (laughs) occupying that nice small niche is where you want to (laughs) be right sabrina hey (laughs) (laughs) anyway so dinosaurs that were smaller than hesperonychus then might have competed for food and resources with mammals but dinosaurs that were Hesperonychus's size would have been big enough to eat the largest mammals around. Yeah, for sure. Other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place included Tyrannosaurus, Despletosaurus, and Gorgosaurus, and also Dromaeosaurus, and Saurornitholestes. And our fun fact of the day, as promised last week, is an update on the Paleobio database. Garrett was very excited. Yeah, it took me a little while to do this because <laughs> I've never gone through it and actually extracted data from it. I've always just kind of poked around on their interactive map. But I've got the data now. And according to the Paleobio database, the five U.S. states with the most dinosaur fossils are Wyoming, Montana, New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado. So those are the top five. California is not number one or even in the top five. In fact, California is number 22 on the list with only 15 published finds. But the top five have way more than 15. So Wyoming has 889. That's number one. I was kind of surprised. I always think Montana is the biggest one. But really, Montana might as well be tied for number one because there's only four less finds in Montana. Then was New Mexico with 794, Utah with 630, and Colorado with 486. So a lot of dinosaur finds around, especially in the Western U.S. In states that I would have expected in that first list. Yes, definitely more accurate when you exclude avians (laughs) when we're talking about dinosaurs. I mean, technically birds are dinosaurs, but that's really not what anybody's talking about. Right. Well, California was number one on the list where you count birds as dinosaurs, (laughs) but on Garrett's list, it's 22nd. Yeah. With 15 fossils found. Yes. Interestingly, a couple other tidbits, Washington, D.C. has three published finds, while Massachusetts is number seven with 327, although almost all of those are footprints because, you know, they've got all those Ubrantes tracks all over the place. I should also mention that the way Paleobio database works, it's only on published finds that have been written in papers, and some of the publications have hundreds of bones, whereas other ones are just like one track. So, these numbers are not really all that useful other than sort of generally comparing things. But it is good enough to say that 16 states have zero fines. And I'm not going to read all those out, but if you want to see them, we'll put the full list on inodino.com under this episode's show notes. 
And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And also consider joining our Patreon. Get that sweet, sweet dino art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.